Hello and welcome to episode 74 of the Page One Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. And thanks for joining us at the Page One Podcast, where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing process, how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips as possible. Um, We have had a great season. This is episode 10 of season 7, I think. Who would have thought we would still be here seven seasons in? Exactly. Still going strong. Take that game of thrones. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and with more to come as well, exactly. Absolutely, this is only the only this is only the end of Act One. <laughs> um, and we've had some great guests on this season already. People like Charlie Jane Anders, Jeff Vandermeer, David Nichols. So, um, yeah, do have a look at the back catalogue. I'm sure there'll be some people you want to hear from. But we've got another great guest this week. We do have a great guest this week. We're chatting with Holly Seddon, who her debut novel was "Try Not to Breathe." Which came out in uh, 2016, sorry. Uh, it was a very, it was quite a big hit actually for her. It was very talked about by people like Marion Keys. Very exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, she then followed up with Don't Close Your Eyes and then Love Will Tear Us Apart. And her newest book is The Hit List, which was out in ebook form um, August 2020 last year and has just come out in April 2021 on paperback. Very exciting. And you can go and get that in your bookshop now, of course. <laughs> yeah, I actually popped into the bookshop yesterday for the first time in Excellent. a long time. Yeah, it was it was very strange, but very nice to be back. So yeah, so I would highly recommend people go to the local bookshop and check out the hit list. Yep. And um, we chat her about, you know, how she got an agent. She's got quite an interesting story about that. <laughs> Perhaps the quickest ever. I think it might be a Guinness World Record. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and changing agents and uh, talk about, you know her writing process and the use of programs like Scrivener to help her plan out, uh, yeah, plan out her novels. So um, it's a great episode. So we'll get straight into it after a quick advert for our page one notebook, and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest. But for now, on with the podcast. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made Page One. Page One is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. 
And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it. So we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project. Whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be a writer? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, from pretty much as far back as I can remember. Um, I remember my uh, mum going into hospital to have my little sister when I was nearly four and I spent the time writing it. I mean, typical attention-seeking older sibling behaviour. <laughs> Presented her with a little book when she came out and knackered. Um, yeah, I remember... the kid. Yeah, exactly. I was like, yeah, but check this out. Um, yeah, so, like, as far back as I can remember, I was always reading, always writing. It just... There was nothing else that... I didn't necessarily think that it was actually possible, if that makes sense. It was, like, sort of a twin-track thing in my head. Of, that's what I ultimately wanted to do, but I also had some sense that not a lot of people could do that so I was also sort of you know toying with all sorts of you know things I could do instead but yeah that's what I always 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 wanted to be and I think you you started out writing for sort of newspapers websites and magazines um how did you get into that to begin with well I think I did what a lot of people do which is do something sort of writing adjacent so I couldn't even get into journalism at first so I thought well you know what's sort of next to that writing in some way in your job so I did things like freelance copywriting and I I did I worked in I had a, like a little marketing role at my parents business for a while um and on the side I was all and I did things like data entry I mean I did, I did not start <laughs> I bit of a sort of you know bounced around doing different temp work different things and along the side I was always trying to find routes into writing I like I did a little um the local paper where I lived once used to have like roundups from the neighborhood. So I used to do the roundup for my neighborhood and things like that. And all the while I was like reviewing music for student websites. And then I, um, I almost, almost, almost got um, some freelance work uh, reviewing, doing reviews for NME, which was oh. a real like, you know, dream nice. come true, but that didn't quite come true. And sort of partly out of spite, <laughs> I set up my own, <laughs> <laughs> website because no one else would give me you know no one else would give me actual paid professional experience as a journalist I set up my own mm. music website which is called Muso's Guide which I started in my kitchen oh my goodness well my my youngest son has just turned eight sorry my second son has just turned 18 and he was literally a bit baby when I set it up it was a really long time ago and this was before it was really easy to set up blogs and things and then um, and that was actually my routine. So it was basically giving myself a job, pretending that I knew what I was doing. I was editor, I was chief writer, I was everything. <laughs> and then gradually got other people sort of roped in to do stuff for me as well. And all of us making up as we went along. It was such good fun, such hard work. And um, I learned so much about, you know, crafting a, a punchy sentence, a headline, all of this stuff, working with PR companies. I understood how things worked, you know, working, getting proofs now is not, any different to getting sort of cds sent through the I mean, mm -hmm. i'm sure it's not even cds anymore but it was cds sent yeah. through the door um so it was actually a really good grounding in what i went on to do as well but that was my that was my routine so every sort of step it was a bit of a 
bit of a hustle, I suppose, bit of a sidestep, bit of a, and then I, um, and then I started working for a charity in my day job, which was, I had an editorial job at the charity. It was running their website. And from there, um, and that was sort of a fairly local um, charity in Oxfordshire. And then from there, I got a job at the Blue Cross Animal Charity in, in London. So all the while I was sort of getting a bit, bit closer, <laughs> a bit closer. And then I don't even know how I, how it happened, but I was approached by a, um, a recruitment consultant who was looking for somebody to work for at um, Associated New Media, which is owned Daily Mail online and this is London and things like that. And not my newspapers of choice by any means, but, you know, quite a sort of step into the journalism world from Mm -hmm. um, running a charity website. Um, And yeah, it was, it was, again, it was writing adjacent because it was being a, I think it was it was a really weird job title, something like subscriptions editor or something, but it was basically writing up ed- advertorials. Um, and then I sort of moved across and did a similar thing at the Sun. Again, not my um, paper of choice, but if you can, if you can write things, complicated things in short and attractive <laughs> way that will you know appeal to a really wide sweep of people, that is a you know, a very, very useful skill going forward. Um, so I, yeah, again, did a similar job there. And then I muscled my way into being um, diet editor there um, online and sort of, yeah, went from there. But I was never that good. I was never that good as a journalist, as an actual sort of being in the newsroom kind of a journalist. I used to get very upset, <laughs> which isn't ideal. <laughs> I, used to be, I used to read the, um, the news wires looking for, so if people you don't know, the wires are sort of an ongoing ticker tape of every every sort of news story that's being sent in from people like Associated Press from around the country, uh, stories from courts, things like that. And you're sort of going through looking for things that will that fit your remit. But all the while I was seeing horrendous news stories and, you know, sort of these really sort of, yeah, like important stories while I was looking for things about diets mm. and couldn't really square that and I that but that actually that experience and being in that newsroom as well as you know me meeting brilliant people making lots of friends when I came to write my debut um try not to breathe the main character the protagonist Alex Dale she is a freelance journalist who had worked in similar environments she got a lot higher than me she was really (laughs) she'd been really successful but um she's sort of I shared some of those experiences with her as that all went into that but um yeah I wasn't I wasn't cut out for anything remotely cutthroat and I didn't I didn't remain in the um you know epicenter of the media the London (laughs) media (laughs) but but during that time were you also writing fiction as well on and off um I had my first two children very young so during that time I also had young children and I was still doing the freelance writing living in London having young children and working in journalism money is not great (laughs) so along the side I was doing a lot of freelance writing freelance anything really um didn't leave a lot of time for anything else I did start a couple of um books but I didn't really know where I was taking them and I think I the furthest I got through was about halfway with one that you know I was really into the premise and I but I didn't plan it. I just steamed in and didn't know 
what genre I now know it was speculative but at the time I didn't know anything about genre I didn't in the marketplace I didn't know anything and I ran aground and um and I now know that that you know in its in its the way that I executed it would not have sold the protagonist as a 65 year old man you know and at the time I was a 26 year old woman you know I didn't know I didn't know what I was on about um <laughs> it wouldn't have sold and I'm so glad it didn't sell um and then I started I, a close friend of mine um became a women's fiction author around that time and I was so proud of her and so jealous and I thought oh okay so now I know what gets you an agent and what sells and I had a go at writing women's fiction um or you know it was called at the time chiclet it was horrible. It was horrible. It was such an embarrassing attempt. And I sent a pay, you know, I think I sent maybe two chapters to her and she said, like, I love you, but this is horrible. <laughs> and it was, no, it was, it was, it was awful. And then, um, and then, so then I'd been out of the, uh, I'd been out of the media for a while and I was mostly freelancing and I was doing a few different things. I'd worked in community, in online communities, which I loved. Um, and I had a bit more, free time and I had this idea for um well I was listening to a health show on Radio 4 because I was you know well old by then so I listened to Radio 4 I was like 29 or something um and it was about people who were what in what's what was called persistent vegetative states is called something different now but basically similar to a very long-term coma but they're awake their, their eyes are open, you know, they're there and they can be in this condition for decades. And somebody, one of the families or possibly one of the nurses who worked with them, these patients described them as be, as it being a kind of living death. And that phrase, from that point, I just had this immediate idea of a, of a woman who'd been uh, a teenager, who'd been abducted and hurt and badly hurt and went into this kind of condition and was still there 15 years later. And that a journalist who's the same age as her would stumble upon her and recognize her from you know the news stories of Bacalog and it just literally it's okay appeared fully formed and that became the kernel for for my for my debut um and that took so that was 2010 and then that took me about three years on and off to write and that actually came out in 2016 so now, that was your first book wasn't it that- and that was my first book. Yeah. yeah. And I had read somewhere that um, you were talking about finding inspiration. And it sounds like, I, I think you said that, you know, you can find it anywhere and it's like a throwaway remark or something in the street or a news story. And, and I, you know, it sounds like your inspiration for that, for, for your first book was that kind of news story, which you kind of overheard. And, and is that something important for writers when you're, when you're starting off with that idea is to keep one eye open for anything that might pop up at any point? Yeah, anything, any snippet. Um, and it's not just sort of the big the big ideas. It's also character. It's also character traits. In that um, book, as an example, the Alex Dale, the, the journalist, um, and this has probably you know been done a million times now, but it, it hadn't been so much then. She was a functioning alcoholic, and um, part of where that came from, the way that she functions, is a big part of the book. She would wait until. 12 o'clock noon and then she would start drinking so she had to get all of her work done in the mornings and part and that came from um I won't name who <laughs> it was there's somebody that I knew who used to drink a lot and used to say once the the sun was past the yardstick 
they don't and it, I mean they drank a lot and um and it was that the idea of waiting until noon stuck in my head and that became a big part of her story so it's those kind of little remarks as well but um yeah what often my my friend Jilly um Gillian McAllister and I she um runs the podcast that mentioned um with me we often say that it's um <laughs> it's really badly put but the thing plus the thing plus the thing you'll often have like a, an idea but it's not enough by itself mm-hmm. and then gradually something else often quite almost contradictory or very very different um will come across and you'll realize that if you put those two things together that's actually got the texture beginning to have the texture of a story but then you need mm-hmm. something else <laughs> so the thing plus the thing plus the thing that is the algorithm <laughs> that we've come up with <laughs> um and those things can come from anywhere it can be a don't know it can be a conversation that you've had or it can be something you've overheard on the bus back when we you know when that was safe um or a film or the dialogue or I I spend a lot of time looking at the British newspaper archives online which are an absolute treasure trove of news stories and concerns and characters and yeah just yeah keeping your eyes and ears open is I think vital and and with with the try not to breathe um Obviously, it, it took you a while to to get that draft done. But did you then find an agent quickly, or was it the case of sort of sending out, you know, lots of query letters and and going through that process? I had quite a unique experience. I now know um, I'd put together a shortlist, and at the top of the shortlist was an agent who had. Um, worked with similar authors or authors I thought were similar because you don't really know how to categorize yourself when you're starting Mm -hmm. but she'd also worked she'd spent time I think she'd done um, a couple of talks at the Faber Academy and things like that and it's things like that suggested to me that she worked with people who were learning and not just fully formed yeah um and I sent my submission to her I was I was um I was at home from work I'd had a an operation so I was recovering and it was sort of you often get these pockets of time where you decide to just take a big swing and do something. And and I I finally did. And I was really, really lucky because she had just sat down to have her lunch when I sent it. So it literally arrived in front of her and she happened to click on it. You can't, you can't plan for that. You Mm -hmm. can't make that happen. There's no, you know, (laughs) that was a complete fluke. So she replied 45 minutes later for contact. The other person that I had subbed to at the same time like five minutes later replied something like four months later and said thanks but it's not for us so <laughs> that's I think yeah the kind of the broad <laughs> swing yeah, between of the spectrum. I mean, that's, yeah. the, that's the dream that's the absolute I think that's the fastest person we've ever spoken to from yeah, submission so. to signing <laughs> oh god I couldn't believe it I mean I like I said I was recovering from an operation I had stitches and I just got up and ran around my house like I did, <laughs> just did like a loop because I didn't know you know, when a kid has just got this, like, has big feelings and they don't know what to do with them, so they just go a bit physical. It was like that, because, yeah, it's not what I was expecting at all. <laughs> um, so she asked to see the rest, which I then decided was just not ready at all and spent all night. I mean, I think I finished about, well, I think I fell asleep about four in the morning and still hadn't finished this mad second, third, 20th edit. Um finished it in the morning and sent it across and it, it still needed enormous amounts of work um the second half especially was definitely not in as good shape as it needed to be but she said she would you know we, we met it's a while ago I'm trying to remember but we met 
um, in London, I think the following week, and she said she would like to represent me. So yes, it worked, <laughs> worked out very well. Incredible. And then um, what was the process to get published? Was that as quick a process as well? Or was there, no. was there a bit of no. time? Yeah. <laughs> no, well, like I said, part was done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it needed a, an awful amount of work. Yeah. Um, the, the first half didn't change hugely, but the second half pretty much was completely rewritten. And I know why. It's because I had so much fun setting it up, getting to know the world, putting all these sort of breadcrumbs together and, you know, working out the character, developing the character. And it got to the halfway point and it was like, oh, okay, I need to wrap it up now. I need to, and we, and so from this sort of quite controlled first half where I did feel quite confident, it was then, it was like people dashing off, chasing down clues and, you know, it was just a bit silly. My my, um, former agent, the one who took it on, described it as scooby-dooing and it was it was scooby-doo behavior so it was unpicking that it was slowing it down it was being it was you know fake it till you make it pretending to be confident um and rewriting a lot and the other thing that was needed was um without giving too much away though it's you know it came out six years ago so it's probably fine um (laughs) one of the 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 character the the girl who'd been trapped in the in the long-term coma in the it opens with her when she was 15. It opens with building up to the point where something happened to her. And then her voice had just disappeared. And that was kind of the missing, the thing plus the thing plus the thing. That was what was missing. Um, when it, we'd gone through so many edits and something still wasn't right. And then we realised that's what it was. And and so I put in her voice um, from her point of view through the years, um, watching people come and go. Um, once I'd sort of threaded that that missing voice back through, um, that was when we realised that it was ready. And it still took, by the time we'd actually finished the editing, and my, my um, agent at the time was fantastic editorially, just gave me such brilliant notes. Her background had been in, she'd been an editor at one point as well, and she was, it was just brilliant, but it was intense. You know, it needed a lot of work. So it was months and months and months. And it was by now August when the whole of publishing goes on holiday mm. in ordinary years so it was a bit tricky to know and we decided we'd still go on submission anyway um because she'd been obviously doing sort of the, the background work of talking to editors about it and saying that she'd have something coming out um and then so I went on submission in the August and I got the offer in October so it was quite a long process I didn't yeah. know if that was long or, or not but um since meeting other authors I've understood that that is quite a long time <laughs> <laughs> And it sounds like the the whole process um, was quite collaborative between yourself and your agent in terms of getting notes back and, you know, you worked on the yeah. second half of the book and adding this kind of through plot of the character voice throughout it. And, um, you know, obviously you'd, you'd worked in kind of editing a long time um, in, in your day job before now, but what was it like getting these notes back from your agent? You know, was it was it hard to take? Were you reading stuff and thinking, that's nonsense, I don't agree with that, and no. then come back to it, or were you like, no, this is perfect this is what it needs I I don't think there's anything I disagreed with um I there was often times when I knew something wasn't right but I couldn't put my finger on why and obviously Mm -hmm. I think I've now I now edit um I do manuscript assessments for for authors I you know I do a lot of that kind of thing so 
having now done it so many times, I can spot these things a mile off as well. But back then I couldn't, whereas she'd obviously was so experienced that she could point these things out. So I didn't, there was ever anything I disagreed with. I would get notes back and be disappointed that it wasn't ready to go because I wanted to move on to the next step. But I never Mm -hmm. looked through and thought, well, you've misunderstood or that's not right. It was, it was like an apprenticeship in how to write a book. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it was an apprenticeship in how to edit a book. And I never had to do it like that afterwards because I learned so much. But, you know, I defaulted to an expert as well. I was not an expert in, yeah. you know, what would sell to, to editors yeah. Yeah. or any of that stuff. So it was, in many ways, I mean, I'm probably misty-eyed because it's so long ago. But I'm like, oh, it was a wonderful time. I'm sure I <laughs> cried loads. But no, it was, yeah, I'm I'm ever grateful for the work that she did on it <laughs> I find it really interesting that um you know you'll get agents that will take an author on when there is that amount of work to do on the manuscript that they're saying you know I think a lot of people when they're sending their manuscript and think this has to be perfect otherwise I'm mm. never going to find anyone um but that that isn't always the case obviously I don't think that's always the case. I think um, there may be some agents who will only handle stuff that's pretty much good to go straight back out. I think that's the minority. I mean, agents, um, they're they're book lovers as well. They know what makes a great book. They are champions of talent. And I think they can see, obviously, if you send something, it's a pile of rubbish. That's different. But if you've got a voice and you've got Mm -hmm. great ideas, but you maybe don't yet fully understand about pacing, that stuff can be learned so if they can see talent and they can see um you know a, a sort of a professional attitude to to developing then no it doesn't it doesn't have to be perfect I don't want to speak for ages but it doesn't have to be perfect but yeah. it has to be good and it has to have a, a quality that they're looking for and they have to believe that they would be able to sell it mm-hmm. I think that's you know a sad part of it is that I was writing something commercial some people are writing in a genre that's harder to sell and and if it's harder to sell and it's in bad shape and you know maybe that's slightly different but um I think most agents are willing to polish and help and yeah champion. Uh, I, I, yeah I just wonder how much it is uh you know what what side of the scales if you like is it a polish or is it you know do you think it can happen that you you can submit to an agent and the agent is like this isn't going to you know, this story just isn't working, but mm. this voice in here is good and the writing's good and everything like that. I'd like to work with you. Or do you think there needs to be that kernel of structure and plot that the agent does does feel that they can work with to, to develop with you? I think, I think it's getting harder. I think com- competition is fiercer. I, I've definitely heard, you know, I've interviewed authors or spoken to authors personally who have had that experience where an agent has taken them on for a book that ultimately hasn't sold Mm -hmm. but they've then sold the they've worked together on the next one packaged it better and you know it has sold you hear definitely hear stories about agents who say this you know this book isn't the right one but I love your voice but I think it's getting harder and harder sorry (laughs) to everybody listening (laughs) but it's it's true I think I think that's and um, I wanted to ask about um, something that we've talked to a few writers about on on the show, which is which is changing agents. And because I know you changed agents in 2018, and yes. I think from everyone that we've spoken to, it's been quite a difficult choice to make. And it's 
not always a personal thing, but it's uh, what serves the needs of your kind of career best. And I suppose that's the way to look at it. And and, uh, and mm. I kind of wonder what advice you might have for people out there who are who are wondering if they're happy with the agent they have or, or you know, and, and how to approach that if it's something that they think they need to change. I think it's more common than people talk about. Uh, I think there's no shame in it um, from the agent side or the um, writer side. I think that it comes down to this. If you want to have a long career, you are going to change from who you were at the start to who you are at the end. You're going to develop as a writer. You're going to need different things. I often liken it to being a footballer. And when you're in an academy, you need a certain kind of representative. You need somebody who is going to help you get you in there, um, you know, all the rest of it. When you are a top flight, you know, um, striker for your, I'm not <laughs> any of these things, but, you know, if you're at the absolute <laughs> best and you've been doing it for, you know, eight years and you're paid a huge amount of money, you need different representatives. You have different mm. needs. And then if you want to move into being a player manager, you've got, you need somebody yeah. else. It's perfectly normal to need different representation, different advice at different times. And that's what happened with me. It just, um, what I needed had changed and, um, I knew it, but because it's because this it's such an emotional thing as well. Because this is a person when you've got an, an agent, they are they were a gatekeeper for so long, and you're finally through that gate. That's huge, mm-hmm. and you don't want to be outside of the gate again. Yeah. So you don't want to make a rash decision, and it's also you're so grateful. You know, I'm so so grateful to my first agent for the work that she did with me as a writer and on my books. Um, and gratitude can really get in the way of making sort of what is essentially a business decision. Mm-hmm. So it often takes a while, I think, for people to actually come to what is a very difficult decision. But I do think once you've started to have those thoughts, you probably ultimately will make that decision. And I think the only thing you can do is be really fair and really honest um, and really grown up about it. Um, because like I say, it does happen more, you know, more than people talk about. And it was painful in some ways and then it was um a relief because when you've made a difficult decision when you've actually made it it, it's always a relief um and then it was you know nerve-wracking because I didn't know if I would get another agent or you know because sort of etiquette wise you don't go looking until you've left and some people don't stick to that but I wanted to stick to that I wanted Mm -hmm. to be really really I just wanted to be able to look myself in the in the eye and know that I'd done it right um but it did mean that I was unagented. <laughs> so, and then you start looking. Um, I mean, I had a short list of people I was interested in, but there's no guarantee that that any of them would take me on. So it was it, a little bit like... Is that a different process, though, from the original search for... I know your your original mm. search for agents was, was quite <laughs> unique, but yeah. <laughs> barely a search. But... Um, <laughs> um, you know, is is once you are published, once you've had an agent, but you're looking to change, is it is it the same process or is it a slightly different process? That, it's slightly that different, but it's it's ultimately the same. And what you're ultimately doing is submitting yourself and your work in progress and and saying that you would like that representation. What's different is that you know people to ask, so you can get recommendations. Mm-hmm. You can you you're more in the world. You've maybe met agents at book launches or something that wasn't the case for me actually because I live in Amsterdam I I don't go to a lot of things so I wasn't as in the world as a lot of people are but um, 
I was able to get recommendations. I knew which agents I enjoyed on Twitter. Um, I knew who was representing authors that I liked. I'd, you know, I, from getting published now, I, I read more and more and more, you know, I became much more um, involved in my writer community. So I was reading more books. I had a better idea of what kind of writer I was and wanted to be. And I could look at who represented those writers that were similar. But I still, it was still a case of um, reaching out to them. In one case, I was able, in the case of the agent I actually went with, um, I was introduced to her by a uh, author friend who was represented by her. So that obviously made it quicker because I didn't go to the bottom of the yeah. submissions email inbox, but it was still basically the same. You know, the differences were that I could say I had a track record in publishing, whereas when you're first submitting, you're submit- you don't have that track record, obviously. Um, but I, I subbed to people who didn't offer to take me on, um, and I subbed to people who did offer to take me on and that's that was a nice position to be in to be able to choose yeah but it still comes down to similar things like do they share your your vision do they um you know do do you like them do you it's a long involved relationship Mm. where you're going to have to trust them you're going to want their advice you're going to want to um you're going to want their insight it's a creative partnership and a business partnership um it's quite hard to get right so it was still a little bit, yeah, a little bit nerve wracking. Um, but when I met Sophie, Sophie Lambert, who's my existing, um, my new, hopefully forever <laughs> agent, I just felt like, I just, it felt it just relief. I thought, mm. yeah, I feel so safe. I feel like this is somebody who understands, you know, we could communicate, we just clicked. And that was just the best feeling. And you can't really... <laughs> That's that's an instinctive thing, and it's um it's a gut thing that you don't have necessarily the luxury of of listening to when you're first starting because it is a case which gatekeepers will let you through, mm-hmm. um and that's a big difference I think doing yeah. it as a, an established author. Yeah, I see that. And I wanted to ask about your your writing process as a whole as well. So so you've um you know you found the agent, you've got the spark. And you're saying, right, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to write this book now. And and, and what's your process? You know, um, I think I read online that you do a lot of research. So I, I'm assuming you you kind of plan out a lot of your stuff before you put pen to paper. It's not, you're not kind of pantsing your way through it. Is that right? I do now. Yeah. <laughs> 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 when I didn't plan, try not to breathe, in so much as I had, I had rough ideas of what I thought would happen, but different idea for who the baddie was and all sorts of stuff like that and and why and um and hence a lot had to be unpicked but also I think when you're drafting that's how you find out what the story is actually about so I do plan I do write a first draft but that first draft needs to be almost thrown away because it's it's part of the process to finding out who the characters are what the story is actually about, where the sort of the interesting stuff comes and where a lot of the sort of twists and jump scares come from is from actually putting your character in certain situations and those opportunities. The, as an example, the um, the hit list, which is um, out, well, probably be out now in paperback when this goes out, but um, there's a particularly sort of 
scary moment where one of the where the main character Marianne is cornered somewhere and that wasn't in an original plan but taking her to the place I took her presented that opportunity and it's now a very pivotal part but that wasn't in the first version um that was in the third (laughs) probably the third version um and so my process basically is getting the the nub of the idea and then interrogating it asking questions like is it enough it's often not enough it often needs like I said earlier the those extra layers that add that richness um I then I start sort of tooling around with it thinking about so with the case of the hit list the idea that came to me was the idea of finding your name on a hit list and no idea why or who who put it there and it was, um, I decided it was a dark, it was a hit list on the dark web because if it was on the main internet, it'd be very easy to go to the police and for them to look up who owned it and it would probably be a prank and go, you know, so on. So I had to, so I already you're sort of giving yourself parameters by exploring what's possible, what's plausible. And then you start thinking, well, my books have to be a relatable person that readers can can recognise themselves in or, or, or at least believe exists and would operate in the same world as them so it couldn't be you know a gun trader who's on the dark web selling guns because these aren't the people that we have in our lives and that that would that wouldn't be relatable so it had to be a normal person who is shocked to find themselves on this list so from there you start you're basically kind of building up these layers and asking yourself these questions all of the time like but why would a normal person even be on the dark web so then you've got it's sort of a series of steps to mm. sort of plan out. So from there, um, I start doing a sort of a plot plan and making sure, like I said, that it lasts a whole book. It's 90,000 words, 100,000 words, a lot of book. Um, and you have to give people a lot of, a lot for their time and attention. You know, they, ha- they have to just really have to keep turning the pages. So there has to be a lot of activity <laughs> So it takes some planning. Um, so then I plan it all out uh, sort of in an Excel spreadsheet um, or on a whiteboard. And then I, I do something which I actually got from James Patterson, not personally. <laughs> I watched his masterclass. Um, I don't know him. <laughs> but he describes that he literally writes the stories from start to finish. Not not writes the book, but writes the story. This happened and this happened and this happened. So that you can get this document and by the end of it, he says he wants people to go, well, that was a great story. I can't wait to read the book. That you have everything that happens in there. So I do that. I do that long form so that I have quite a chunky, like I've just done an outline and, and plan and it's like 20,000 words or something. Right. Like it's just wow. a monster. Yeah. But it's everything that's in there. So this is wildly different to when I was planning Try Not to Breathe or not planning Try Not to Breathe, which was like a note on my phone with a few ideas. This is very different. And then you start writing it and then you realize where the snags are and you realize what's not going to work and you you know you around us around sort of halfway I I'm no longer I find I'm no longer looking at the plan mm. it's still there sort of in my head and if I get lost I can look at it um but it just I have to go through that process to kind of lock it into my brain and then I start actually writing it and then that that first draft will never see light of day it will always need to be massively rewritten but like I say that's when I then work out who the characters really are and what it's really about um 
it's a long process with a lot of waste. <laughs> There's a lot of wastage in writing. A, in writing a good book, you have to chuck a lot of stuff away, I think. Yeah. And and are you someone then that, that tries to get that first draft done and fully in the knowledge that I'm going to rework this, I'm going to change this? Or when you're writing it, do you try and revise it and fix bits as you're going? Or do you just want to get to the end of I that do. draft? No, I do fix bits as I'm going. Um, I do write fast. I mean, my, my background was online journalism where, you know, your deadline's an hour. It's, you know, you don't have a year to write anything. <laughs> um, so I am quite used to writing fast and I am quite used to being flexible and and sort of reactive. Um, that said, like I couldn't go on if I know oh, God, I'm going to have to completely pull this character out. I couldn't carry on writing that character. But if I know that a setting is a bit dull, I don't necessarily stop to change it at the point. I just make a note of that, and, mm-hmm. I, and I come back to that. Um, so a, mix, a mixture of both. But a lot of it's through through learning. You know, I, I know now that this is a long process where I am going to mess up. I am going to chuck stuff away, Um so I can sort of go through it knowing that. Whereas when you're first doing it, you're trying to get it perfect. Yeah. And that's a huge amount of pressure to put on yourself that it's just impossible. It's just impossible. Nothing, there is no perfect first draft. I don't believe yeah. it. <laughs> and and Scrivener is a software that um, I know you use, uh, yeah. or you, you've liked to use, and I know, I know Mark and myself use it as well, and, and we're big fans of it. And I wondered, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite a daunting piece of software. It is, it's mm-hmm. great for moving stuff around chapters around and plotting and planning stuff but it's it's quite huge and for someone who's new to it um, I certainly found it quite overwhelming when I first started to use it and I wondered mm. what what your tips and tricks are for Scrivener for people who might be using or thinking about using it my my main tip is to not worry if you don't use everything or mm-hmm. even most of it mm-hmm. um I probably only scratch the surface but I what I do with it works for me I am really bad at ever reading instructions, recipes, watching tutorials. Like I just don't. But this is the one example where I did. I actually went through the tutorial and I definitely recommend doing that because it is, it's not always super intuitive if you are used to, say, Apple products or you've always used Microsoft Word or something. You expect certain things and it's a new piece of software. It's, it's neither of those. Um, but... Once you get into it, yeah, it's really useful, especially if you have multiple voices. I find, um, I think if you're doing a a one voice, first person, sort of hero's journey start to finish, maybe just doing it in one document is is easier, but that's not what I do. Um, There's almost always more than one voice or there's there's different times and, you know, all the rest of it. Um, So I find it very useful. I I just use... um, the folders as chapters and the scenes um within them nothing more fancy and use it to sort of move around and when I first started using it I tried to sort of use the notes facility you know you can put it and I don't bother with any of that now because it wasn't what I wanted it for but I think that could be really useful for lots of people and then when I have drafted it all in Scrivener I then just export it out as a doc um because even though I mean I use um, a Mac, but publishing uses Windows and Microsoft. So I always put it as a dot doc, so it'll see it'll look the same way as whoever's going to read it in the end. Um, and then I read it on in that document. And then I will often do my second, like I'll do a I'll do a structural edit in Scrivener by rebuilding from scratch, but copying things across. 
But once I'm sort of a bit further on, I then switch to doing it just in the one document. When it's a case of moving sentences rather than chapters, mm-hmm. yeah. um, then I'll keep it in one document. And, and when you've got multiple voices in a book, do you, you know, do you write in a linear manner? So you're switching between those voices during during the drafting, or do you sometimes try and continue a voice, you know, one person's story and then sort of jigsaw it back together? Yeah, I because they will often be a call and response to each other. I have to do it in a linear way. Um, generally um, in the hit list the first part careful what I give away but the first part the majority of the voice um, is Marianne the woman who finds her name on a hit list but there is uh, interspersed with chapters from another point of view but they're generally quite short and they do like I say they are a call, call and response so I had to do that to do in one go and in the second part of the book there are two voices three voices, I remember now, which are, each one has quite equal um, weighting, quite equal billing. No, there's two voices. Oh God, don't even remember. <laughs> but, um, two voices, but they're, they're, e- they're more equal. And I did write them more in chunks because the flow for a while doesn't necessarily, it's not call and response mm-hmm. in the same way. So I, I prefer to stay really in the voice and they're quite unique voices. Um, so in answer, I do everything. I do all of it. <laughs> but, <laughs> I'm not consistent. When you're doing the editing, is it easier to, you know, to get that consistency of voice? Do you, again, do you read it in a linear way or do you try and say, right, here's Marianne's parts. Does the, does this all sound consistent? Does it fit together? No, or, then I read it like a reader. Right, so I will okay. only read it from, yeah, from mm-hmm. beginning to end, left mm-hmm. to right. Um, because otherwise you you miss you see what you want to see, which is really yeah. dangerous, I think. So, um, yeah, I try to kind of I try to put it away for a little bit between um, drafts, which ends up being about like two days. Um, <laughs> but otherwise, because you then sort of do see what you want to see. But yeah, no, I read it as a reader, and and actually, as sort of in the later editing stages, because I edit several rounds. Um, a lot I will then switch to reading it on a Kindle well on a yeah. or a Kindle app on a on a tablet and I read it as a reader in a whole new way then you see different things you often spot typos and little bits and just the just the pace and the flow and the kind of rhythm of things you, you're reading it um especially rhythm actually that's something that at that stage reading it in that format really helps me to to recognize when it's a bit you know it doesn't quite work it's a bit sluggish yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I try to switch it up and not just do it all one way. And you mentioned it a few times now, but your new book is The Hit List, which um, I know came on ebook last year and paperback this month. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about the book for those that haven't read it yet? Oh, OK. Yeah, sure. Um, well, as I've already shown, I'm really bad at pitching, um, <laughs> pitching my books. <laughs> but yeah, so The Hit List essentially is a woman, um, the, the premise is what, would you do if you found your name on a hit list and you had no idea who put it there or why? And it opens with Marianne. She's a, re- a fairly recent widow. It's the anniversary of, of losing her husband. She's just started a tentative new relationship, but on special sort of or difficult days, she will often spend time with her, her late husband's things. She'll wear his shirt. She'll look at old love letters and things like that. And this is what she does that night. But, she um, she looks through her emails from him, their email conversations, and then it doesn't go back far enough. So she drags out his dusty old laptop and she starts looking through his things and 
that's dangerous because I mean I wouldn't want anybody necessarily to look through old you know years yeah. old emails from before mm-hmm. they knew me I think that changes the person's concept of you but that's what she does and from there she ends up finding out things that trouble her and confuse her and upset her about her husband and this is also the time when she discovers that he was going on the dark web which is a surprise in itself she's a secondary school teacher which is the only reason she knows even such a thing exists is because obviously they've done safeguarding training and she's she teaches teenagers who brag about things that they haven't really seen and so this is how she sort of recognizes what it is knows it's a bad thing and clicks anyway and from there it starts a cat and mouse of between her and a and a dark web assassin who is genuinely trying to get her and for a while obviously she doesn't really believe it's true because you wouldn't (laughs) um so she spends some time looking at the other names that are on the list and gradually it becomes clear that she might actually be in peril and i don't want to say anymore because i I don't (laughs) list out the whole thing but yeah nice (laughs) and and obviously um Certainly, the ebook has came out uh, in lockdown, and we're hopefully opening up and coming <laughs> out of lockdown now. But I mean, has that made a difference compared to your past book launches? Obviously, it must have made a big difference in terms of yeah, how it happened. Yeah. yeah, so different, and it's slightly different for me. I, I really, really feel for people whose debuts have come out in this because that you're never going to get that debut again you mm-hmm. can have eight more book launches but you'll never have that debut again so I don't I don't feel particularly sorry for myself I feel sorry for those people but it certainly was different um I live in Amsterdam so I'm not it's never been easy to just pop into a bookshop and see my book anyway so in a way it's not wildly different in that respect so on a day-to-day sense but I couldn't have a party I did like a, an Instagram live with Jilly um ordered myself a cake with my book cover on it and ate it by myself rather than <laughs> cut, it, <laughs> cut it in front of friends and family but besides that it wasn't yeah it was it's it's a really weird time because all of the usual rules go out the window mm. things yeah nobody could go to a bookshop and buy any of the books yeah ordinarily I sell a lot of books through um uh, the W.A. Smiths at the airports, airports were closed. So it made a lot of sense to um, to do ebook and audio first rather than keep moving the data as a lot of people did. I mean, publishers really had to scramble to work out how to do it, to not clog up the future kind of schedules, yeah. and make everything come out. And then we had that sort of bonkers day, didn't we? Which I think was, was it? Was that in August, actually, where loads of things came out on? No, it was September. September, I think, yeah. Just after, crazy, yeah. yeah. I just, yeah, I'd just come out before that. And then I think it was maybe even the following week where there was 600 odd books or, you know, traditionally published books all out on the same day. Because, I mean, you know, nobody knew how to how to do it. Um, but I'm very glad that my, my paperback's out on the 15th of April and bookshops have just reopened. So I'm sure it's not going to be in any way the usual kind of footfall and that's fine. But I am glad that at yeah. least... Yeah. I might get the odd photo of my book in the wild. <laughs> <laughs> and you also run a podcast um, with your fellow author, who you've mentioned a few times, Gillian uh, McAllister, called Honest Authors. And um, I wonder if you could chat a little bit about that, and you know, why you started up in the first place. And 
um, you've got a lot of episodes out there and it's a kind of helpful <laughs> guide for finding agents and getting out there and stuff and and, um, and and how you come up with new ideas for every episode as well. Sure. Well, I mean, it mostly started because we didn't know what we were doing, but we were asking each other, which isn't necessarily a particularly good route for success <laughs> when neither of you knows. Um, I'd had one book out and Jilly had had, she was about to release her first and we'd got talking over Twitter, Twitter is as often the case. She'd asked me to read her proof, and I've been really like snooty about it. Like, well, I'm really busy, but like send it. <laughs> and then she, um, her editor, <laughs> sent it to me, and I started. I opened it just to check it was working, and started reading it, and basically read it nonstop. I was on holiday at the time, and read it on, nonstop. I was like, oh, this book's fantastic. So from that, um, we started, we started talking, and as she was getting closer to her publishing date, she was asking me more and more questions. And I was like, I don't actually know. So we decided that lots of authors don't know because why would you know when you've not done it before? So originally it was sort of aimed at talking about the experience of being a debut author. Um, But as we obviously then published more and more books and learned more, um, it became much more about the whole experience of being a traditionally published author. Um, And I mean, really, in terms of coming up with ideas, it's, it, it's what do we want to know? Hmm. You know, there's so, and what did we want to know? And what are people asking us? There's so much mystique uh, and so much lingo and so many gatekeepers. And when you have finally got some interest and you've finally got an agent or you have got an offer, you're so scared to do anything to ruin it that, even you don't want to ask questions. I I certainly didn't. I wanted to pretend that I knew exactly what I was doing and I knew all of the abbreviations. But why would I? Because I'm not of that world. So we realised that a lot of people were holding their breath and not asking questions. So we asked each other the questions or we got got a lot of um, authors on to talk through their journeys to publication. And then we sort of branched out and did an... uh, I think season three we did experts a focus on experts and we interviewed editors and we interviewed we interviewed um uh, publicity directors and just went sort of came at it from that point of view and that that was the one that really um made a big difference actually and got a lot of new listeners and a lot of mm-hmm. attention um and we'll just we'll we'll keep doing it for as long as we've got questions we want answered really but it's kind of therapy like we you know it's it's such a strange job and it's such a privilege but that doesn't mean it's always perfect and always you know it's actually such an emotional thing because you're giving so you're pouring so much of yourself into what is essentially a product and that's kind of a curious life to lead so it's been really useful to um kind of process that weirdness by talking about it so we are very honest and it we do talk about sort of the stresses and the anxieties and the weird things you do. Um, and so far people seem to like it. So. Excellent. Excellent podcast to listen to alongside this one, perhaps. Um, <laughs> um, and I also saw that you're a member of the international thriller writers uh, group. Um, I mean, how did that come about and how does that help with your sort of brand and everything? <laughs> To be completely honest, I just noticed that some other thriller authors were members <laughs> of <laughs> and that's about it. But um, it's useful to see what other people are doing. It's also useful, I think, to get an, an international sense. 
a lot of the people who are particularly big in my genre are either based in America or they their primary market is America. So like Lee Child's British, mm. but he lives in America and his primary market is America. And I think that um, I want to be as... <sighs> To put it bluntly, like I want to do this for as long as possible and I want to be really, really good at it. And that involves being professional and it involves lifelong learning. And I try to educate myself and I try to stay aware of what other people are doing and what the market is doing and, and try to, you know, because it is a creative pursuit. But if the business side isn't there, no one's going to, if they're not selling, no one's going to keep giving me book deals. And I won't, it's not just about, you know, exercising my creativity as sort of, Maybe that doesn't sound very, um, maybe that's a bit depressing to hear for some, but that is the case. It is a business. So I do try to just, yeah, just keep learning and educating myself and and being a part of, yeah, as many sort of organisations and going to as many events as possible online and offline is is a way to do that, really. That's a really good point because I think so many people get this idea in the head that, you know, it's, it's, primarily about what you want to write and sharing your story with the world and and ultimately you know there is there does have to be a trade-off I suppose between what you want to say and write and what people are willing to read and pay for and and I think you do have to sacrifice is maybe the wrong word but give up a little bit of Mm. your whole complete creative control in order to say actually these guys know what sells and if I want to make a living of this I need to sell and it's not a bad thing. Selling books isn't a bad thing. And no, no. You know, the, you, you, you've still got plenty of space to be creative and stuff and do it in a way that's marketable and sells well, et cetera. Yeah, it's not a sacrifice, but it is a compromise. I exactly, think yeah. that um, if you want to have total creative freedom, self-publish. You know, mm-hmm. we have more avenues for getting stories out now than we've ever had before. Do, you know, write a, write and produce a podcast if you don't want to sort of be set by other people's parameters like all power to your elbow you've actually got more opportunities now to do that than ever yeah but I am not somebody who can do all of the things needed to do that I need an editor I need somebody who understands sales I'm you know I'm I want to be a traditionally published author for various reasons including that I don't have the expertise to, to do it another way yeah um and I think that, yeah, you, you do have this idea that you can just come up with stories. Once you're, once you're an author, once you're in, then you can just keep producing stories. And that's not, that's not totally the case. You do still have to, for example, you could be working on something that your publisher is already publishing something really similar to that. You need to know that. So you need their input before you start mm-hmm. writing. Um, and it can be frustrating because you want to just, get going um but ultimately it's it's worth it she says through gritted teeth because i hate doing outlines (laughs) but um it is it is important really and um what's next you said you just finished outlining a a new book i think well yeah so i finished um i finished the the next book so the book that's going to come out after the hit list that's now gone through all of its major edits and is just um I think next month I'm going to get the copy edits which are things like the dates wrong and the you know there's a typo and that kind of sort of nitty-gritty stuff Mm. um so in my head you know that book is finished so now I'm just trying to um yeah negotiate with my publishers what to write next so this is the outlining stage um 
with the hit list, I moved to a new publisher. So this is this is sort of the first time that I've done this with this publisher. So I really want to get it right. Mm. <laughs> it's slightly nerve wracking. Um, but I'm yeah, I've, I'm so I've just done another go at an outline which I sent to my agent. So I'm waiting to see what she thinks that I might I might email you afterwards and say can you edit this out because you said it's horrible <laughs> but yeah this is all part of the process <laughs> so with um so presumably the hit list and the book you just finished writing was a two book deal with yes. your new, new publisher so like what how does that work with your next one then is it is it a sense of i'll tell you what my pitch is and if you like it you can sign me on for two more books or is it a case of write the book and then we'll see hopefully it's i'll tell you what i'd like to write and hopefully get it i mean nothing's a foregone conclusion unless you're really i think really really i think it's harder than ever so i think you have to be quite established in a relationship for anything to be a foregone conclusion but no they haven't asked me to write the whole book and then we'll see um but they do understandably want you know a Mm -hmm. good grasp of of what it will be just to make sure that there's full buy-in because you need this is thing as well like you need to, to make to make a success of a book you need the marketing team to be really excited about marketing mm-hmm. it you need the sales team to really feel that they can get it into the right places to sell it um the publicity team to believe that it's the kind of story that they can pitch to you know media outlets so it is important as much as it can slightly clip your wings it is actually important that all these people give their feedback um and actually i like having some parameters i like this one of the reasons that i love writing genre fiction because you have parameters to play with um i'd be really quite nerve-wracked if i had to just if i could write anything that i want in any form in any genre in any style i was like where do you start i, I need some parameters <laughs> yeah <laughs> What was the last book that you read? The last book I read, kind of fittingly, was The Reacher Guy by Dr. Heather Martin. Um, So it's a biography of Lee Child, um, which is fascinating. It was absolutely jammed with um, like writing advice and all all of that inspiration. But it was also really interesting, um, sort of the, the making of the man, really. So I would highly recommend it. Excellent. Nice. And uh, what about the last film that you watched? The last film I watched and enjoyed. (laughs) (laughs) More fun than one you didn't enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, that was that was bonkers, actually. But I can't remember the name. But the last film I watched and enjoyed was Palm Springs. All right. Amazing. Oh, it's just brilliant. It was um, it's funny, but yeah, watch it. It's really and it was the perfect one hour 30 minutes that all films should be oh yes i have to say i definitely am a fan of that 90 minute sweet <laughs> spot when you know yeah. it's going to be a, well we watched endgame the the, the avengers film and we ended up watching over like two nights because it was it's, all, it's over three hours long and in one go i was like i'm actually getting quite tired and yeah. pause to go to the toilet and stuff it ends up being about three and a half hours and, and yeah you know, I went to the cinema to see that and I actually booked myself. Um, there's a gorgeous cinema in Amsterdam that has love seats. 
and I oh, yeah, yeah. but you have to normally you buy two tickets I bought myself two tickets I went <laughs> without my kids I went by myself in the day and nice. I lay on the sofa and watched it and that's the only way you can watch a three-hour film <laughs> <laughs> could have been worse could have been Zack Snyder's Justice League four hours, four hours <laughs> no I'm tapping out I'm not doing that one <laughs> um, and what's the last tv show that you watched or are watching line of duty yeah, <laughs> yeah we can get that here we can get it's like our sunday routine is we watch it in bed it's the only linear tv we watch because we don't watch dutch tv i've heard it's much improved over last season which i wasn't a massive fan of last series but i've heard this one's step up is that right would you agree do you know i don't know if i'm just swept away by excitement or if it's good and i don't mind because i just really <laughs> enjoy watching it <laughs> nice uh, well, the very, very last thing we do is a quick fire, either or, and there's no right answers apart from one, but we'll get to that later on. And uh, <laughs> okay. first one, I'll go for it. It was two authors. Um, I know that you've said that you like um, Agatha Christie or Kate Atkinson. Agatha Christie. Oh, yes. Uh, TV <laughs> or cinema? TV. Uh, Night Owl or Early Bird? I am now an early bird and I don't like it but I think I'm stuck with it <laughs> um, uh, fancy restaurant or a takeaway takeaway <laughs> <laughs> and the last one real book or ebook? Oh, real book I think um, yeah. I'm afraid that was the um, that was the incorrect answer for that last <laughs> one there <laughs> Tarek's a big ebook advocate what's you know, your I, what? am, I am too I honestly honestly am and it it's Everyone always of, says this when I tell them. Everyone's always, oh, yeah, no, no, I, I love ebooks. I'll <laughs> think about it. I just remembered it. It's my favourite. <laughs> it's really difficult because ebooks are where I've, I've done the best. Um, it's, I was an ebook success before I was a paperback success. So I have a lot of affection, but my bookcases are my pride and joy. So yeah, I love actually having. So it's I, more. I do love aesthetic. the look of the bookshelves. Yeah, yeah. I would be happy to buy a book and maybe like a hardback and you get an ebook for free. You said yeah, before, some kind that. of like deal. I would. Get I do that often, actually. Backs, yeah. yeah, I often do that. If I read something in ebook and love it, I want that beautiful mm-hmm. um, yeah. artifacts, and I'll then buy it. Yeah, I saw a horrifying photo in I think it was an IKEA catalogue, and it was a bookshelves, and they were recommending that you store the books back to front so the oh, pages God, face I saw out. That. I know. Like, why would you ever find it? What was the? What was? The, why were they recommending? It was just like it was. A, it was a bookshelf advert, but all the books in the bookshelves they had in the ma- in the magazine were pages that facing out. Yeah. It was, like, it was all about the neutral color. Yeah, that was it. That was it. Yeah. That's just that's like a, that's yeah. like a mentalist. Yeah. <laughs> that's a psychopath would have the books stored like that. Yeah, it was. That is a that is a definitely a red flag. <laughs> yeah. I would leave that house. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I will just repeat that anyone who places their books back to front on a bookshelf is probably some kind of psychopath. I mean, I don't believe anyone actually does that. It's clearly done for <laughs> a photograph in an IKEA catalogue and nothing yeah, else. Yeah, if, if you are someone who likes to put their books back to front, can you please send us an email yeah. so we know never to approach you in the street? <laughs> exactly. And uh, yeah, she mentioned Pam Springs there as well. I just watched that, and that that was a it's a really good, fun film. It's great, isn't it? Yeah, um, probably the less you know about it, the better. Yeah, absolutely. And also, which I didn't realise when I watched it, there's a post credit scene. Yeah, yeah, I told you about that. Yeah. <laughs> which there is which addresses one of the problems I had with the film. I think so. I need to actually go back and watch that. <laughs> it's not even post credits. It's like. 
five minutes into uh, five I, seconds I, into the credits, you I, must have I, stopped I, I it. I switched the TV off. The, set, the second the last word is said, it goes off. <laughs> I have no time for credits whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, uh, thanks very much to Holly for for coming on the podcast. There, it, it was a really interesting chat, and that story about how she got her agent is is oh, pretty incredible. It's a dream. It know, is. Yeah, it's a dream. Send it. I mean, send it before lunch. Part of me wonders if she wasn't maybe doing like a Jason Bourne, be outside the window. Just, uh, she's just curling into, curling up with the uh, sandwich and a bottle of Coke. I'll just send the email. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, that is the dream that, that you know, because you always imagine, and I think it is what happens most of the time, is that your email goes to the bottom of a very, very long mm-hmm. list. Um, so for it to be picked up and read so quickly is, is incredible. And also yeah. interesting what she was saying about uh, changing agents, because... You know, once you've got an agent, if you're wanting to be a writer, that that's a big milestone. And it's a lot of effort most of the time, holy story notwithstanding, <laughs> um, to get one. And to then change an agent is a big step. And it must be quite scary. It's almost like going back to square one again. Yeah, I think that's right. When you spend so long trying to find someone, to the thought of them going back out, in the cold alone again is yeah, it's a daunting one, and it's 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 one that I think every author probably has to consider at some point in saying, is this the correct mm. path that I'm on, etc. And, and and it's a brave move, but it's it, everyone that we've chatted to who's done it in the past has always said that it's been for the better. Yeah, definitely. And as Holly said, you know, you some agents, you know, some agents will help you start out in your career some agents will help boost your career forward you, you yeah. it can be that you need different people for these different aspects yeah, that's of your a, career that's a really so. good point it's not always about a acrimonious split no, you know exactly it, it, as you say it's, it's a it's a what what kind of help do i need in my part of the, of the of the career path that i'm on right now and that yeah. is an important question to ask yourself for sure definitely definitely well um you can pick up the hit list in a bookshop as we mentioned <laughs> now now that that's allowed certainly in the uk um so thanks very much to holly for coming on to the podcast and do check out her own podcast that we discussed there honest authors because um that's a, a really useful podcast as well and a great one to listen to alongside this one perhaps <laughs> yeah it's a complimentary podcast exactly absolutely um and that was going because this is episode 10 we were going to end the season there in a nice round number but uh, we do have a special extra bonus guest next week we do indeed our bonus episode is a really exciting chat with nina allen who is a sci-fi author she's rich she's won the bsfa the british science fiction award yeah um, for her work uh, it's a really fun chat we have with her and I think it's gonna be it's a really excellent episode yeah really interesting and actually she's got a really unique redrafting method that we discussed <laughs> yeah, as well that's right. um so yeah it, it, it's a really good episode so uh hope you tune in for that one um before we go as always I'll ask that if you enjoyed the episode if you could take a couple of seconds to give us a rating and review if possible on apple podcasts or whatever podcast app you use because that always helps us continue to get great guests and of course you can always reach out and get in touch with us by sending us a tweet in the twitter machine which is at right underscore gear or an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk but otherwise have a great week and we'll see you next episode see you later